Our scripture for today is Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of his sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray this morning. Father, how incomparably great you are, and what an overwhelming joy it is to worship you, to open your word, and to learn more of you. And we have not even begun to scratch the surface. Over and over again, you have proven faithful even when we were faithless. You are good, you are gracious, you are steadfast even when we were none of these things. Thank you for watching over every day, every hour, every moment of our lives, knowing that not a one of them is beyond your control or passes without your notice. It is a great comfort to know that we do not gather alone this morning, but that we join millions of our brothers and sisters, your children around the world who do so as well today. We pray for your church wherever it is gathered, that you would be high and lifted up. We also recognize that while we gather openly and in freedom this morning, there are so many who do not, and we pray especially for them, for those who face pressures to capitulate to the spirit of the age and the pressures of the world. Help them to remain faithful. For those who face suffering and persecution, grant them protection and bring salvation to those who would be their enemies. For those who would gather in fear of their very lives, preserve and keep them. And for us all, Jesus, whatever burden you ask us to bear, whatever price we may be called upon to pay, help us to do so not in despair or fear, but in hope and in confidence, knowing that you do not ask us to do anything that you have not already done. And we also pray for Redeemer. If ever we doubted your goodness or your faithfulness, we need only to look around to see all that you have done here, and we are amazed. We plead that you would help us to be good, wise, and faithful stewards of your church because we recognize that none of this is ours, but that it all belongs to you. As we go forward, help us to measure our success not by the things of this world, but by our faithfulness and obedience to you. May our hearts be fired by a desire to see your gospel taken to our neighbors and to the nations, by a desire to love one another with the love that you show us, to make peace with those who would desire our harm, and to live in such a way that others would see nothing but you in us. We pray also for our pastor and for his family as they are away, that this would be a time of rest and refreshing for them. And now I pray for the preaching of your word this morning. I acknowledge my complete, utter dependence on you. May every single thing that I say be of you and point us to you. I pray for everyone who will hear your word, if they do not know you, that you would bring life where there is death and save them. For those who do know you, that you would help them to grow in Christ-likeness. 
And for those who are hurting, that you would be their comfort. I pray that your word would sink deep roots into our hearts and bear much fruit in our lives. And where our lives differ from and fall short of you, may we be the ones who are changed. And it is in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have not already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 that Leanne just read. We're nearing the end of our sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and if you've been coming throughout, I hope it has been a blessing to you. And today we come to the author's closing prayer for the reader and also for us. If you've not been here for the entire series, or maybe like me, you've just slept a few times over the course of it, this is a good day to be here. Because everything that we've been talking about throughout this series is really encapsulated in this prayer, in this benediction that we've learned over these last eight months throughout the entire book of Hebrews. In that time, we've seen two prominent themes over and over again. I want to remind us of them this morning because they're going to be the foundation for what we're going to hear today. First, we have seen time and again that Jesus is greater. Well, greater than what? You ask, well, greater than anything in which we would be tempted to place our hope, to be right with God, to help us to live in obedience to him. The writer has specifically pointed out that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he's greater than the Mosaic law, that he's greater than sacrifices, because he is the final and ultimate sacrifice. In fact, remember all the way back in April in Hebrews chapter 1, how it described Jesus in those opening verses, is that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Don't blow by that because this is important foundational truth for us. Because right now, this very second, the entire universe is being upheld by Jesus. Everything from the orbiting of the planets to your safety coming to church this morning to your very next breath is in his hands. And that should be very very comforting truth for us this morning. The second thing that we've seen throughout this book is that because of what Jesus has done in our lives, we should be and look different. Who we are and what we do should reflect the reality of who he is and what he has done. And we've tried to be and want to continue to be so careful here to make two points. One, you cannot be good enough to earn your salvation. This is not about earning God's favor. That's not within any of our power, and that's good. We must cling to that. But we don't want to err and fall into the other ditch and think that once we've been saved, therefore we have no reason to change, that our lives don't have to look any different, because they very, very much should. If, as the Bible tells us, we were dead and are now alive, if we were God's enemies and are now his friends, if we were rebels against his rule and are now his ambassadors, it would make sense that we would look different. My expectations of you as a dead person are different from my expectation of you as a living person. If you do much of anything as a dead person, I'm going to be very surprised. Uh, If you're my enemy, I feel differently about you than if you're my friend. If you are rebelling against me, I expect different things than if you are my ambassador. So too it is with our relationship with God. So those are, the, those are the anchors to which we're clinging this morning. 
that have been laid for us. And it's all going to be brought to bear in this short little prayer. And the main point of this is this. In Christ, God has given and will give us everything we need to live lives to glorify him. Let me say it again. In Christ, God has given and will give us everything we need to live lives that will bring glory to him. It's a simple message, but there's so much beauty packed into this short little prayer that I want us to take the time and just let it, let it breathe a little bit this morning. Let yourself be amazed anew at the splendor of who God is and what he has done as we look at his word together. And as we're doing that, ponder this question. Let it roll in the back of your mind. What will my life be? Why am I here? Why did I get up today? Why will I do it again tomorrow and the next day and on and on after that? So how do do we get there? Well, I think looking at this passage, we see three things uh, that we want to unpack. First, we're going to see what God has done for us. Second, we're going to see what God gives to us. And then finally, we're going to see what God does in us. So let's look at these things together. Point number one, what God has done for us. Look back at verse 20 with me. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. There's a lot happening in this one little verse. Let's take our time and work through it because it says, now may the God of peace. Little phrases like this are often easy to miss, but we need to stop because it sets the whole tone for the passage this morning. What does it mean for God to be a God of peace? Well, first, it reminds us that in our natural state, we are at war with God. And that's a very counter-cultural position because I think the default posture of a lot of people, maybe of you this morning, is we think, all right, God, you're going to be right over here. I'm going to be right over here. Not a whole lot between us. I'm going to leave you alone. You leave me alone. And we're just going to be good, right? I'm going to be basically decent and we'll be fine. But the Bible doesn't grant us that kind of neutral ground. Isaiah 53 tells us that we just sang this morning that if you do not belong to Christ, you are in active, open rebellion against him. We don't like that. That doesn't sit well with us. But that's the reality with which we have to grapple. Secondly, this idea that God is a God of peace shows us that it is God who is the peacemaker. Now, as an aside, consider that if God is a God of peace, and we desire to be more like him, we ought to give thought to how we can make peace. Now, it's unlikely that anyone in here will ever be tasked with the burden of brokering peace between nations. Although I guess if Dennis Rodman can do it with North Korea, anybody might be called upon. You never know. But it is very likely, I would say, that you will be called upon to make peace with a neighbor or peace in your home or in your workplace, or maybe just in your own sinful heart. You know there is not peace. Whatever the case may be, ask God to help you to be a bringer of peace wherever he has you. And this idea of God as peacemaker should prompt us to ask, how did he make this peace with us? That's what the rest of the verse shows us, so let's keep looking. It goes on to say, who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus It was God who raised Jesus to life from the grave after he died for us. And that, of course, is the central truth of all that we believe as Christians. So much so that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus has not been raised, 
then we are still dead in our sins. We live in vain, and we are above all others, the most to be pitied. There's an old saying attributed to Pascal. It goes something to the effect of that even if Christianity is not true, why not just be a Christian? You know, worst case scenario, you just kind of lived a good life and you go on. But no, no, the, the Bible doesn't grant us that. If this is not true, if Jesus does not live today, then we're without hope. And all is truly lost. But God did raise him from the dead. And that changes everything for us. However, not only did he raise Jesus from the dead, but we now have a risen Savior who knows us deeply and intimately. Because look at how it describes him. It says he is the great shepherd of the sheep. And in this analogy, of course, he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has gone to great lengths to show us, to comfort us by showing us how much Jesus loves us because he lived a life where he suffered just as we suffer, where he was tempted just as we were tempted, but where we give in to those temptations and commit sin, he remained perfect. But it's important that we remember that he is not some far-off God who cannot understand what our lives are like. He lived every minute of it, and he deeply and intimately knows your pain your grief, your worry, your doubt, everything. And he loves you and he cares for you more deeply than you could possibly imagine. You know, for most of us, the analogy of shepherd probably doesn't carry a lot of meaning. Anybody a full-time shepherd in here? Part-time, anytime shepherd? No, I I thought not, nor I. But as it happens, we were visiting my family in East Tennessee last weekend. And despite not living on the farm, they own a lot of goats. It's another story for another day, but there's many goats abounding at the Shaver household. And we got to witness the miracle of birth in the goat pen. As it happens, the miracle of birth is disgusting, but we got to see it anyway. And our kids told us they were grateful that they do not have to be bathed by licking as this new baby goat was. And we shared their gratitude because, frankly, they're just going to be dirty if that's the case. But we saw it happen. But as I was watching this, I thought, man, how smelly and just gross and disgusting. It would be to have to do this all the time. But then I was humbled to think that, you know what? Jesus had to lower himself to care for us dirty, smelly sinners far more than I would have to lower myself to care for that goat. He who is perfect beyond compare and yet chose to live our lives, suffer our pains and experience our temptations. Yeah, I love that in the closing prayer of a book that has been so focused on the greatness of Jesus, the author chooses to remind us that he's a shepherd. Maybe the lowliest comparison you can make. He is the great shepherd of the sheep indeed. What else? By the blood of the eternal covenant. So not only is Jesus our great shepherd, but our peace with God was secured by his blood. Now Stephen's going to preach next week more on this idea of eternal covenant. Um, But for our purposes, I want to see two things here. First, our peace with God was purchased by the blood of Jesus. This is no cheap peace, and it's directly related to him being our shepherd. In fact, he spoke of himself in this way in John 10 when he said that he's our good shepherd, and a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, which is exactly what he did. And then secondly, this has been God's plan from eternity past, and it will remain forever. He was not, and he is not caught off guard by our need for him. We don't need to worry that our need has somehow escaped his notice. He sees us, he knows us, and he loves us so much so that he gave us his son. 
And because of that, he can make promises like this in Isaiah 54.10. He says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. So what has God done for us? He has brought an end to our war against him. He has made peace with us by the blood of his son. And I worry that we can get so comfortable, or at least so familiar with that truth, that it loses its shine. It loses its ability to comfort us. Because the fact that in Christ, God has made peace with sinners is nothing short of an absolute miracle in the fullest sense of the term. And that's one of the reasons we celebrate so joyfully when salvation comes to this place. And if you're here this morning and you think you have sinned too much to be saved, that is not true. There is nothing you have said and there is nothing you have done that can place you beyond the long, mighty, saving arm of Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you think you've done too little to need to be saved, you probably wouldn't come out and say it that way. But maybe you think, I've been okay. I don't deserve God's punishment. I certainly don't deserve an eternity in hell. I would say to you, you have too high a view of yourself and far too low a view of God's holiness. You need to repent and trust in Jesus and be saved. Whatever the case, know that where there was war between you and God, he has made peace through Jesus. And as if that were not enough, He doesn't stop there because if that is what God has done for us, what does God then give us? Which takes us to the second point in the first part of verse 21. Look again there. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Now in the first part of the author's prayer for us, we are reminded of what God has done for us. Now he shifts to the request for God to give something to us. And the truth of that first part of the prayer is what gives us confidence that God will answer this second part. Because he has done that, we now know he will answer this. Because he didn't just make peace with us and forget about us. No, he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. He has things that he intends to do. What is that? It says, equip you with everything good. Now that seems like a pretty straightforward request, and it is. But I think it's worth pausing to consider how does God answer this in our lives? What does it mean for God to equip us? And I think throughout Scripture, we see a number of things with which he equips us. But there are four I want to focus on, especially this morning. And none of these are going to be new to you. They're not going to be surprising, but I want you to think about them in light light of this request to God. The first thing he gives us is his word. There's an old saying, and it's always tickled me, and I I can't figure out who to give credit to for it. It's not mine. But it goes like this, that if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, Read the Bible out loud. And you know, we, we kind of laugh, but it, it carries so much truth in it because what it reminds us is that God has spoken to us through his word. And it tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. What? Equipped for every good work. And so it is. Now, no matter what you believe this morning, and I don't know what's brought you here. I don't know where you stand in relation to Jesus. Maybe you've been walking with him your whole life. Praise God for that. Maybe you are new to Christianity and you're still figuring this out. 
Wonderful. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You're just exploring what this all means. We are so glad to have you here. Maybe you're here and you're very hostile to this. Somebody dragged you here this morning. We're delighted you're here. We hope the coffee and the chocolate are good and we hope you will learn much from this. But whatever, wherever you're at in life this morning, every single person has some way that they determine what is right and true and beautiful and good in this life. You, you can't get away from answering that question. You have to decide, how am I going to pursue good? What is good? But the ultimate inalterable measure of these things is God's word, which describes itself as a lamp for our feet and a light for our paths. So that's the first thing he gives us to equip us. Secondly, he gives us his Holy Spirit, who he tells us will teach us all things, will remind us of what Jesus has said, will convict us of sin, will lead us into truth. If you are a believer, don't neglect the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your conscience. His presence and his work in your life are one of God's greatest gifts, especially when he won't relent. A dear pastor once put it to me this way. He said, there are going to be times when the Holy Spirit decides to convict you of sin, and it's going to feel just like this. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I'm not stopping. Stop it. Stop it. Just over and over. Don't, don't ignore that. Or when he's compelling you to go and act, do it. Do it. Do it just, just over and over. And you, if you're a believer, you've felt those moments, right? When, when you know God is telling you what to do, don't, don't ignore those promptings from the Holy Spirit. God equips you to do his work. Receive it accordingly. The third thing he gives us is prayer. There's a reason the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing and to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition to make our requests known to God. He has invited us into this most intimate communication with him. I love how Tim Keller describes it in his book on prayer. He says this, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, Prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. Fourth, the other thing he gives us to equip us is the church. It's his people. God uses his people to equip us. Just a few weeks ago, Jamie taught us from Hebrews 10 that we must consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds and to encourage one another. You know, of these four, I think this can sometimes be the most challenging because, well, frankly, being spurred hurts sometimes. Encouraging one another to love and good deeds hurts. Walking intimately enough with one another means sometimes inadvertently we're going to hurt one another. Friend, let me encourage you not to neglect the church and God's people. This is such a great source of blessing God has given us if we will do this for one another. And allow me just just a brief moment of, of personal digression to say thank you. Thank you to the people of Redeemer. We, we got here just a little over a year ago. And every single day, you have been that to my family and me. You have loved us. You have welcomed us. You have encouraged us. What a great 
a tremendous treasure you are to us. We love you guys, and we are so thankful for you. So thank you for that, for equipping us. That's how he does it. His word, his Holy Spirit, prayer, and his people. And the natural follow-up to this, I think, is, okay, that's how he equips us. With what does he equip us? What's he giving us through this? And again, he gives us the answer. It says, everything good. And both of those words are important. Because first, God will give us everything we need. He is not like the evil, wicked toy makers who tell you some assembly required, only for you to discover at 2 a.m. Christmas morning, they did not give you everything the toy needs to work. Liars. Liars. God is not a liar. He does not delight in bringing us to the edge only to let us fall. He will give you everything. Not only that, but he will give you everything good. And this works in two ways in the life of a believer. First, every good thing we have is from God. And James 1 tells us that. But then also, everything that God does in us and works for us is for our good. Romans 8 tells us that. Now, I want to pause here for a second to say I know that that truth has and can be used in some really well-meaning but really wretched ways to try to comfort people when they're suffering. So please hear this morning, I am not minimizing or diminishing your hurts and your pains. I bring this up today only to highlight the fact that in equipping us, God does give us everything good. And for what reason? Why does he do that? Well, it tells us that you may do his will. He's not trying to hide the ball from us. He wants us to obey him. He wants us to know how to do so and to be able to do so. And I really think there are three heart postures we can have towards doing the will of God. The first is we can say, I don't want to do it. Well, that that requires uh, repentance. And depending on how deep that goes, maybe salvation. It might also be, though, that your heart posture is, I want to obey. I want to do the Lord's will. But I don't know what that looks like here. I don't know what to do. You know what? That's okay. That's why he gives us these things. And if that's where you're at this morning, you're saying, I want to obey, but I don't know what that looks like, then please come talk to me, to Jamie, our elders, our staff. Really, anybody here would be delighted to help you work through that in your life. The third posture is, I want to obey him. I know what I need to do, but it's hard. Anybody been there? It's just hard sometimes. And that's okay too. Because again, God has given us what we need here in one another. But to do that, for that to work, we have to be willing both to offer and receive help. And both are important. Redeemer, let's not be a place where anybody could be here for long and think either of these things. One, that they have to go through this life alone. No one should ever be here for more than about five seconds and feel that. But also, no one should be able to come here and think, I am sufficient to get through this life alone. And I think for a lot of us, that's the more common struggle. How many times has someone asked you, how are you doing? Do you need help? I'm good. I'm fine. I've got it. Most of the time, that's just pride. We don't got it. I certainly don't got it. I don't got grammar, apparently. I don't have it at all. (laughs) But the point is, if we're not willing to receive the help when it's offered, we are cutting off one of the greatest blessings God has given us, and we're denying our brothers and sisters the opportunity to love us well. We are all hurt by our refusal to give and receive help. So let's love one another well. 
And praise God for giving us to one another. Now, the point of all this, it's not to berate you. It's not to guilt you into these things. Because remember our order. We do this because of what God has done, not the other way around. But it's to remind and encourage you that God wants to do this in your life. And to fail to do so is to just keep cutting yourself off from what he's given you. This is how he has done this. Professor James Smith, in his book, On the Road to St. Augustine, says it this way. He says, when you've realized that you don't even know yourself, that you're an enigma to yourself, and when you keep looking inward only to find an unplumbable depth of misery and secrets and parts of yourself that are loathsome, then Scripture isn't received as a list of commands. Instead, it breaks into your life as a light that shows you the infinite God who loves you at the very bottom of the abyss. That's where God waits sometimes. I think one of Satan's greatest lies that he whispers in the ear of the believer is that at best, God begrudgingly saved you and he's already sick of you. And don't you dare come and ask him for anything because you're just going to incur his wrath all over again. And friends, that, that is a lie straight out of hell. God delights in giving good things to his children and none more so than in answering our plea, Lord, help me to love you. Help me obey you. Help me to love your people. He will grant that prayer all day, every day, without fail. Have you ever had a moment when you've just felt this upswelling of love for maybe your spouse, maybe a child, maybe a friend, and it's not tied to anything they've done. Just in that moment, you're just like, I love this person so much. I want to tell them. I want to show them. It, it just comes bursting out. Like, those are great little moments God gives us. But I want you to know the most intense, deeply passionate love you have ever felt is an infinitesimal fraction of the love that God feels for you every single moment of your life. That is the love that he has for you. And he calls you to these things, not to lay another burden on you, but to draw you to himself and to help you be more like him. You know, I'm not unmindful of the fact that we're approaching a new year. And I didn't want to make this a trite sort of New Year's resolution sermon. But there are far, far worse things you could resolve to do in 2020 than to commit to engaging God's word more, to trusting his Holy Spirit, to communing with him in prayer to engaging in the church and with his people. And if you need help doing that, again, that is literally what we're here for. Please come and talk to us. We would, we would love nothing more than to help you do these things. And more importantly, it is God's joy to do so because he has given this to us. So we've seen what God has done for us. We've seen what God gives to us. And that brings us to our last point, what God does in us. Look again at verse 21. It says that he equips us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love the end of this prayer because it is such a hope-filled combination of everything we have learned through the book of Hebrews. And there are four quick things I want to see here, and then we'll conclude about what God does in us. First, it says he's working in us. So having reminded us of the greatness of who Jesus is and having called us to obedience, he takes us right back to the truth that even as we strive to obey, it is still God working in us for his purposes. As the word tells us elsewhere, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And this is the constant tension we hold. We are responsible for and called to active obedience, to striving to please God. But even in that, God does not cease working in our lives. He continues to help us every step of the way home. You know, Jamie's talked about this several times throughout, and I want to hit it again today, that we rightly sometimes can get so focused on salvation is by grace. It is not by works. And yes, praise God, that is gloriously true. You cannot earn your salvation. But I think we can lose sight of the fact that in Christ, as a believer in him, we can live lives of obedience that are pleasing to him. Will you be perfect in this life? No. But you can truly please God. Don't give up pursuing after him. And he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Do you see what's being said here? So having equipped us with everything good to do his will, God works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That towering German reformer, Martin Luther, he said it this way. He said, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Or as one paraphrase puts it that I love, God does not love us because we are lovely. Rather, we are made lovely because he loves us. Guys, that's, that's good. Because I can tell you, I, I look back at my own life before Christ and, and to my shame so often after him, there's, there's not a lot lovely in me. But Jesus, oh, oh, he is lovely. He is, he is good. Do, do you hear the freedom there, friends. You don't have to look at yourself and worry and wonder, am I worthy of God? Can I make myself worthy of him? No. No, you can't. But look at what it says next. It says, through Jesus Christ, you see, he works in us that which is pleasing his sight through Jesus. It is not about you. Rather, you can look to Jesus and know that he has made you worthy It is, if you belong to him, his righteousness that God credits to you. It is his blood that covers you. It is he that makes you pleasing in the sight of God. Do you remember what God said to Jesus at his baptism? It's with you I am well pleased. Because of that, he could say it to us. And in him, you will stand before him and the Father the God of the universe will be able to say to you, with you, I am well pleased. And that is good news. And to what end? To whom be glory forever and ever. That's it. That's the point of everything, but especially the point of everything that we have been learning in the book of Hebrews. The reason why God has done all of this, his work in your life, It's meant to be a part of the eternal tapestry of glory that he is weaving, and it will stand forever. So this morning, if you're searching for meaning, for purpose, for hope, for 2020, or maybe just for tomorrow, this is it. And it's a grand one. Not us, but him. You know, eight months ago, yesterday, we began this journey through the book of Hebrews. We called this series Out of the Shadows. And my prayer among many for you this morning is that God would call you out of whatever shadow might be laying across your soul 
and into the radiant, incandescent light of Jesus. And for some of you, that may mean for the first time, you are seeing the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done. You're seeing the ugliness of your sin, and you know that you need to repent of and trust in him. And if that's you today, we would love to talk to you about that. Please come and find me, again, our elders, our staff, anybody. We would be so glad to talk with you about it. For some of you, that means renewing your commitment to living faithfully for him. And yet, for others, that shadow in your soul, it's one of, it's one of grief. It's one of pain. It's one of sorrow that just won't seem to lift. And if that's you today, remember these things. You are welcome here. God is faithful. Jesus is greater. And you are not alone. We love you very, very much. And so does the Father. And one way we remember these things every week here at Redeemer is by taking the Lord's Supper together at the end of every service. Now, if you're new to or visiting Redeemer, again, we're so glad that you're here. If you are a Christian, if you have professed faith in Christ and made that known to the church, we invite you to participate in this family meal with us. But if that's not you, we ask that you let the bread and the cup pass, not for the sake of excluding you, but because there's nothing magic in those things. These are all about reminding us of who Jesus is, of what he has done for us. And scripture tells us that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord and eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so I would urge you, as the elements are being distributed, to spend this time in prayer, asking the Lord to examine your heart, to reveal any sin of which you need to repent, and to prepare you for this act of worship. So the team's going to sing, we're going to pray, and then I'll come back in just a moment.